want to take just a moment to welcome a couple of very special friends. Uh, Dr. David Carrico and Janie Carrico are with us today. Dr. Carrico is the executive minister of the West Virginia Baptist Convention. Uh, David was pastor when I came here many moons ago. And David and Janie are both very good friends and good friends of Clarksburg Baptist Church. So we welcome you to our worship today. We're going to be looking in a moment at the first chapter, the beginning of the first chapter, and the beginning of the second chapter of the book of the Revelation. And so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, or if you prefer, you can follow it on the screen, or you can follow it on your mobile app. In Scripture, Revelation means an uncovering, a bringing to light of that which had been previously hidden. An uncovering, a bringing to light of that which had been previously hidden. With that in mind, we're going to read from the first verse of the first chapter of the book of Revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. It's a book that holds for some a mesmerizing and an intense fascination. And it's a book that a lot of Christians are just, quite frankly, afraid of. And so they run from it, or, or they avoid it. But I think it's unhealthy to do both. Revelation was written to Christians who were beginning to suffer increased persecution. As best we can tell, it was written around AD 95. The Roman authorities were beginning to enforce emperor worship, claiming that Caesar was God. And for Christians, that posed a problem because to be true to their faith Jesus Christ is their Lord and not Caesar so John writes them to encourage them to resist the demands of emperor worship but he also writes to them to let them know that there's a final showdown coming between God and Satan that Satan will increase his persecution of them and that they must stand fast in this time of persecution and they must also stand fast, even though it means death. But there's good news. And I like the way Earl Palmer puts it. He talks about the victory of the word of God in the face of terror and evil. And for those of you who are afraid of this book, that's the great message. It's the triumph of God in the face of terror and of evil. It's good news for us. Revelation points to a glorious world to come where death will not exist, pain and suffering will not exist, trouble and hardship will not exist, and we'll live forever with our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's good news. That's good news for us. So if you're a believer, don't be afraid. Revelation as a combination of three literary types. There's apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature is a heightened or an intense form of prophecy that is richly symbolic. Uh, it's used to portray the drama of the end times. There's prophecy. Uh, it's God's direct word to his people through his servants, both foretelling and forthtelling. 
and also epistle. There's a, a letter addressing the needs of seven specific churches. In fact, back in verse 11 of, of Revelation 1, it says, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, all of these churches uh, are in Asia Minor, which is, is modern-day Turkey. And if you are not familiar with where that is, you can see Italy kind of in the middle here. Asia Minor is over here. So on, the, on the, your left-hand side of where it says Asia Minor, that's relatively where these churches uh, were located. Just gives you kind of an idea in your mind as we go through this study. I want to tell you a couple of things up front. One is that you can actually make Revelation much more complicated than it needs to be. And as we go through this, we're sort of taking the approach that, that lean is better than luxurious. Lean is better than luxurious. You can let the text speak for itself and not try to read into it a whole bunch of things that the text really never intended to say. And the other thing is, is although these letters were written to specific churches in specific situations, we can, just like we can from any other epistle in the New Testament, we can learn from it. But we don't want to take anything mystical out of it and we don't want to try to read into it any more than is there. But to take what God's word says, to look at their situation, and to see how it applies to us today. So that's going to be our approach. Today, we start with a church at Ephesus. And in chapter 2 of Revelation, the first verse says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Back in verse 20 of Revelation, it tells us that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, it's another example. It explains itself in a lot of different ways. You don't have to make it more complicated than it is. The angel of the church is often interpreted to mean the pastor or the leader of the church, even though the letter was written to everyone in the church. And although John is doing the writing, the physical writing, it's very obvious that Jesus Christ is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands is indeed the one who is sending the message and is also the one who is in charge. He writes to Ephesus, the mother church of all the other churches. It's located about 60 miles from where John actually wrote this all down. It's one of the largest and most impressive cities, or was, in the ancient world. It's political, religious, and commercial center was unparalleled throughout all of Asia Minor. And as far as the church, it was associated with the ministries of Paul and Timothy and John himself. And the city played a significant role in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. In verse 2, it says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Christ commends the church. He commends them for their hard work. He commends them for their patient endurance, for their intolerance of wicked and evil people, for examining the claims of false prophets and apostles, and for patiently suffering in the face of increasing persecution. Now, all of these characteristics are characteristics of a busy church. 
They're a characteristic of a church that's doing some good things, and, and Jesus commends them for that. He says, look, you, you know evil when you see it, and you're about rooting it out. You're about the, the problem with the, the false prophets. You're, you're about rooting them out as well and exposing their falsehood. We really are not quite sure who these people were. He says in verse 6, the Nicolaitans, but uh, they were a heretical group that we don't know a whole lot about that uh, practiced immorality. But regardless, this, this church is commended. They are commended for what they are doing. But he says there's a problem. And in verse 4, we read this. He says, yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So what is the love that they had at first? I guess the best way to describe it, it's that devotion that they had to Christ when they first came into a relationship with him. And I think all of us can, can understand that. You remember when you first came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You were excited. It was new. It was fresh. You couldn't wait to tell other people about it. It infected everything that you did. Everything that you did was motivated by this great relationship, this love relationship, this intimate relationship that you had with Jesus Christ. It infected everything about you. Now, the church in Ephesus, it appears at one time they had that. They were excited. Their relationship with Jesus was a part of everything that they did. It was a part of their teaching. It was a part of their work. It was a part of their everyday lives. But somehow, this excitement had waned over time. Now, they remained obedient. Because Jesus says, look, you, you're, you're still out there doing some really good things. They were doing good things. But the problem was, they were motivated more by Christian responsibility than they were by this relationship that they had with Jesus Christ. Now, the Ephesians are doing all of these things. But what they're doing is they're finding that they're caring more about doctrinal purity and good works than they are love. Now, don't misinterpret this. It's important that every church strive to have a pure faith. It's important that every church root out heresy. And Christ is in no way telling them that this is a bad thing that they're doing. It's a good thing. But what's important is that what they are doing needs to spring from this relationship and this love that they have for Christ and that he has for them. And in the battle to maintain sound teaching, in the battle to maintain moral and doctrinal purity, it's quite possible, and indeed it happened in this church, that they lost the love that they had had at first. Now, we see it all the time. There, there are churches with, with lots of activities and, and lots of programs. They're, they're doing a lot of good things. And there are churches that there's something going on there every day and every, every night of the week. And there are churches that, that are out there in their community. You know, they're, they're helping the poor. They're feeding the hungry. They're clothing the naked. They're doing all that Jesus stuff. They're out there doing that. They're busy. They're zealous, they're enthusiastic, they're on their guard against any hint of heresy, not just in their church, but in other churches as well. And their people have all the right bumper stickers on their vans and on their cars. They're all against the same thing. And their people 
who are very quick to point out the evils in the society. Their doctrine is as pure as the wind-driven snow. But something is missing. And it's that love for Christ and for others as the motivating factor for what they do. They're busy. They're doing good works. And some not-so-good works. But they're out there doing ministry. But it's not motivated by love. And it's not coming from that intimate relationship that they have with Jesus Christ. Now, we all know churches and people like that, don't we? But rather than pointing our finger at other churches and other believers, is it quite possible that this passage could also be speaking about us? About what we do? About our motivation here at this church? Maybe. Maybe not. But it's something that is certainly worth considering thinking about what happened to the church in Ephesus. Now, I don't think the people in Ephesus woke up one morning and they got together and they decided, hey, Today's the day we're going to start doing things motivated by something else. Today is the day that we're going to forget about this love that we have for Christ and about our relationship with him. Today is the day that we're going to go it on our own. We're going to keep doing good stuff, but we're going to be motivated by ourselves and not by something else. That didn't happen. I don't think they woke up one morning and decided that or didn't have a church business meeting to decide that. What happened happened gradually, maybe even in small, imperceivable steps. It happened quietly. Think about how it happens in other churches. Think about maybe how it happens here. Someone is drawn to Christ. Someone who didn't have a relationship with him is drawn to Christ. They are drawn by his love and by his mercy and by his grace. That's what draws them to him. And because he has drawn them to him, they accept him as their Lord and Savior and they become involved in this church. And after a few years of growth, they reach a point where we decide we can put these people in leadership positions. We, we can let them teach and we can let them serve and we can let them hold these very important positions of responsibility. But what happens is, if we are not careful, there will start to be little subtle shifts in the way that they go about things. A little subtle shift here and there. Maybe it's not noticed by them. Maybe it's not even noticed by us. But what happens after a period of time is you find that the person is more motivated by the organization and the person is more motivated by the responsibility or maybe the person is more motivated by the controversy than he is motivated by his intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and the love that flows from that. And here's the really strange thing. That person gets to the point where they are putting all of their emphasis on something that never would have drawn them to Christ in the first place. How many people do you know that are drawn to Christ by positions of power? It's not the way it works. We have to humbly come before him and to confess our sins. 
nothing power to do with that. How many people are drawn to Christ because, hey, I'll get a really good position or I'll get to make decisions? You see, we get so wrapped up in that and that's what starts motivating us rather than what drew us to Christ in the first place. His love for us, his mercy and his grace, a relationship with him and a desire to share that with other people. The first love is abandoned and it is replaced by activity and church work that will never, ever, ever nourish the soul. And the Christian becomes totally preoccupied with things that never would have drawn him to Christ in the first place. Now, the same thing happens in marriages. The same thing happens in friendships. The same thing happens all over the place. But it happens slowly, and we need to be on our guard. And sometimes, like the Ephesians, we need somebody to just take a cold bucket of water and just throw it into our face to wake it up. Jesus says, you guys are doing great things, but, but, here's the cold water. You're doing it for the wrong reason. And sometimes for us, I think we need to really, really, really be aware of ourselves, of our motivation, and why we're doing what we do, even if we're doing good things. Warren Wearsby has said that labor is no substitute for love. Neither is purity a substitute for passion. And the church must have all of them if it's going to serve Christ. Verse 5 of Revelation 2. He says, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I hate also. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In spite of the privileges that the church in Ephesus enjoyed, in spite of their good works, in spite of all the things that they were doing, they are in danger of losing their light. They are in danger of losing their light. When a church loses its love, it loses its light, regardless of how doctrinally pure it is. Now, how do you get it back? How do you get it back? I mean, it would be easy to just say, well, okay, I'll just change. It doesn't always happen like that. In fact, God realizes it. So he gives us kind of a map, a little direction to get back. The first thing he says, if you want to get back to that first love and, and the correct motivation for what you're doing, he says to remember what it was like. How do you restore this love you had at first? Remember what it was like. Do you remember do you remember when you first came to Christ? Do you remember the feeling of joy knowing that your sins had been forgiven? Do you, do you remember that, that great desire that you had just to go and to learn and, and to be closer to him every day and to grow in a relationship with him? Do you remember that wonderful, wonderful time 
when the love of Christ was the motivating factor for everything you do. He says, look, just stop and remember. Remember what it was like and look where you are now. And you'll see how far you've fallen. Remember what it was like before. Look at yourself now. And you'll realize that a change is necessary. The second thing he says is to repent. Now, you might be going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Repent has to do with sin. Um, Haven't I just kind of straight off course a little bit. I mean, I mean well, I'm doing good things. I mean, haven't I just kind of strayed a little bit? Well, yeah, you have. <laughs> but that straying is, is also sin. Anything that you do that's contrary to God's will is sin. So what you need to do once you realize how far maybe you've come from where you were, then you need to come to God and you need to confess that you have come very far from where you were. And it is a sin, and you need to confess it. And you do need to repent. God will forgive you. And he will get you on the right track back to where you need to be. But you can't do it unless you first realize that there's sin involved. And you confess that sin and repent of it. And let God change your direction. And then finally, you need to do what you did at first. Do you remember when you first came to Christ? I mentioned a little bit of this earlier. You couldn't get enough of the Bible. You studied it every chance you get. You took it to work. You kept it in your lunchbox. You kept it in your desk drawer. Every time you had a break, you read it. When you got home at night, you couldn't wait to sit down and read your Bible. You couldn't wait to spend all that extra time that you had in prayer with God. You you, you couldn't get enough. You would carve out times. You would give up things just to be able to spend time with God. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? You need to get back to that. Do the things you did at first. Those are the things, the prayer and Bible study. They're going to keep you where you need to be. And a lot of times when we stray, that's why we stray. The other thing I want to tell you is get involved in a life group. We preach that all the time here. And a lot of you have followed through and, and become involved in a life group. A life group is a group of people. We have meet on Sundays in the morning. We have meet on Sunday nights. We have them in homes during the week. We have them on Wednesday nights. There are opportunities for you to get involved in a group of people who, one, study the Word of God, who grow together, who share with one another, who have a sense of fellowship, but also having a sense of accountability. Because we have all these lawn rangers out here. These, the, you know, we're out here, we're doing faith on our own. But when tough times come, there's nobody to lean on. Now, you can lean on Jesus, of course. But there's no feel of family or community. And you feel lost and alone. If you get involved in a life group, you have people not only that will be your support, Not only people who will study God's word with you, but you also have people who will hold you accountable and will be able to say, David, we've noticed that you're getting away from where you used to be. You need to come back. Left to myself, by the time I realize that I may be too far out there. If you're not involved in a life group, you need to get involved in a life group now. 
Not next week. Now. See me afterwards. I'll get you lined up. That's how you're going to grow. That's how you're going to stay accountable. And that's how you're going to be able to return to what you did at first. This passage ends with whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, even though this passage, this letter, is written to a specific church going through specific issues, we can learn. We can look at ourselves and and we can identify maybe with these believers how our busyness has kind of become our motivating factor instead of our love for Christ. Maybe our joy has diminished in our salvation or maybe we're simply performing our Christian acts out of duty instead of out of love. And it's so easy to be consumed with serving the Lord that we lose focus on the Lord himself. And the danger is that we will lose our light as well. And we don't want to do that. God has put us here to be a shining light in our community. And the only way that light is going to stay bright, and the only way that light is going to stay with us at all, is if we are doing works of service that are motivated by our love for Jesus Christ. Once we start out on our own, we're doomed. We need to come back. He says here, whoever is victorious. Some translations say overcome. That relates back to the repent part. You keep at it. You keep at it. If you can overcome these things in your life and and get back to that solid base, doing things out of love for Christ and because of his love in you and because of your relationship with him, if you can get back to that, the one who overcomes, the one who is is victorious, he says he's going to spend an eternity with him eating from the tree of life. What about you? What about your life? What about your motivation? Are you maintaining a fiery passion for Christ? Is all your work coming out of that wonderful relationship and that love that you have because of him? Are you being motivated by the one who rescued from you from the grave and who rose to give you eternal life? Or are you being motivated by yourself or by service or by the organization? If so, the opportunity for you is available to come back. I hope you'll do that today. Let's pray.